원하소? But we also look for the patterns, the connections, the causal sequences, because if one wants to understand anything, you would, you would want to understand not only what it is, but what does it do, and how does it interrelate with its context, what that which precedes it, that which follows it, that which is in its environment. If you take things in isolation and just take a little snapshot all by itself, well, your understanding will be limited. So you might get its impermanent nature, that, okay, it's a rising bup, 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 staccato, But so much of what's going on you won't get if you're just focusing moment to moment with a whole series of like staccato or strobe light, little flashes of, of bare attention. It's the connections. And William James made a very important point. I'm just jumping outside of Buddhism for a moment. But to something I think very important. And Andrea, once again, it, for your interest, I think it's quite interesting. Um, maybe this came up earlier. In fact, I think it did. But William James made this point. And consider from your own experience whether this is true But when you have two things that are related, a cause and effect, for example, that the cause, if we go Sautrantica, the cause is real, you can perceive it, it has causal efficacy, it does things. Likewise, anything that is a result is itself also a cause, right? So anything that is a cause is also as a result, anything that is a result is also a cause of something else. So we have two real things, right? The cause and the effect, the seed and the sprout. Uh, the emotion, and then the behavior that, that is aroused by the emotion, and so on. But William James's point, which I think is really very interesting for a, a radical empiricist, and that's the kind of person he was, he says it's not only the, the, the relata, the, the elements that are interrelated, but the relationships themselves are real. The relationships themselves are real. Not just that which is related, but the relationships themselves are real. Now, in ordinary language, that seems perfectly obvious. Is a marital relationship real? And who in his right mind can say, oh no, that's just an abstraction. You know, it's crazy. And so, or parent-child or sibling relationships, are they real or not? Oh, come on, what's more real than, you know, that? And so I think he's got something there which would suggest, but now it gets quite subtle, if we're going to follow this out, and delwa, yundeki delwa, papa made So what I was saying here is in the Sautrantika, a relationship is not permanent, it's not unchanging. Therefore it's changing, being changing, it's real. Being real, it lends itself to direct perception, or one could say measurement. But now, exactly how is it that you directly perceive a relationship, Right? I mean, to perceive the relata, that's easy. There's the seed, there's the sprout, there's the emotion, there's the behavior, there's the mental affliction, there's an emotion, and so forth. But how do you perceive, how do you perceive, not imagine or infer, how do you perceive a relationship? And what I would suggest here is that you may perceive the relata, the, the elements that are related, the individual, the cause, the effect, that cause, that effect, this primary cause, that cooperative condition, 
You may get those with snapshots, with a little strobe, with a flash, with a momentary gotcha. But if you want to see the relationship, it's as if the getting the individual components that are related, you can get those with a telephoto. But if you want to see the relationship, you have to go wide angle. And that is let your awareness smear. Smear across time. So you're not just getting little unrelated dots. You're literally connecting the dots. But not just with imagination, because relationships are real, whether or not you conceptually designate them. Sprouts give rise to, or seeds give rise to sprout, whatever you think about them, they do. And so, to smear. Now, this is an interesting point. There's just so many interesting things here. It really is true. But in Buddhism, for example, it said, how long does it take for a certain mental event to take place? How long does it take? Well, there's the very briefest duration of, let's say, a, 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 of a pulse of cognition, and that's one, one sixty-fifth, sixty-fifth, of a finger snap. And I checked with finger snap experts, and they say a finger snap is about one-tenth of a second, one six hundred and fiftieth of a second. That would be the shortest pulse or co- pulse of cognition, but. For anyone, unless you're an incredibly highly advanced yogi, you'll not ascertain anything in one six hundred and fiftieth of a second. And neuroscience and cognitive psychology bear that out. It's too short. You have to have a cluster of them, a cluster of them. But so, but then if you have, let's say, if you have about thirty milliseconds, about thirty milliseconds, uh, or let's say, let's say twenty milliseconds, one fiftieth of a second, that's right on the edge of being able to ascertain something really simple like. Red. That's very basic. Red, as opposed to blue. Can you get it or not? And that would entail giving you a flash and then masking it. That's how they do it. They give you a flash and they mask it so you don't have the reverberation effect, uh, which is then something different. Um, so, let's say, let's say 20 milliseconds, 1 50th of a, of, a, of a second, that may be, right on the edge, long enough for a cluster of those very brief pulses of cognition to cluster together and be able to provide the knowledge that was read, right? But now they give an interesting one. How long does it take to doubt something? You know, to doubt means to vacillate between two extremes. Yes or no, maybe, maybe not. You can't doubt and think maybe yes, maybe yes, maybe yes, maybe yes, because then you're pretty much stuck on yes, which is not doubting, it's just yes, yes, yes. So it has to be weighing, alternating between two possibilities, right? Will my mind ever be quiet? Will rumination ever settle down? Blah, 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 blah. You won't get it that way. Okay. So, but how long does it take for a doubt to occur, to, for uncertainty to occur? Well, it's going to be a heck of a lot longer than one fiftieth of a second because you're going to have to weigh two possibilities and be comparing them. So there's a cluster. So that would imply, in order to... Pre- and doubt, of course, exists. Therefore, it is perceivable, but not in 20 milliseconds it's not. Because your, 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 your telephoto is too, too intense. It's too narrow a time to be able to pick up to ascertain doubt. It has to be longer, like a half second, maybe, or a quarter of a second. Oh, yeah, there I was doubting because I went, yes, maybe not. Maybe yes, maybe not. And that takes a little while, right? So you have to have a wide angle in terms of time a wide angle to see, oh yeah, there was a flip-flop there. Okay? So having said that, now we look at causality. 
Because as we're closely applying mindfulness to the mind, we should be very, very interested in causality. What's causing what here, right? And this is just a fundamental issue underlying all of the Buddha Dharma. And that is, it fundamentally so much boils down to causality. If you just look at the framework for the whole teaching for 2,500 years, it starts with an effect, suffering. It's okay, there's an effect. We all care about it. So you've caught my attention. I don't want to suffer. Whether I'm a groundhog, a gopher, a locust, human being, doesn't matter. Yep, don't want to suffer. Yep, got that one. But then the suffering just arise because God made it happen or because it just happens randomly or what have you? Or does it, are there patterns? Is there, is there some orderliness now? orderliness there in the generation of suffering. Second noble truth. Here are not the mere catalysts. Oh, I'm feeling bad today because it's cloudy. As if it's cloudy, everybody has to feel bad. That's not a cause. That's certainly not a substantial cause of feeling bad. That's a cooperative condition for you, but not for you. Because you like, you know, you like rain and you don't. And so all those cooperative conditions, they're kind of, okay, let's set that one aside. Now what's really important because a rainy day may make you unhappy, maybe not. But what always gets you? What always gut punches you? Delivers the goods for really providing misery, suffering. And all it's waiting for is the cooperative conditions. And then, boom, it always delivers the goods. And then the Buddha, in his brilliance, said, well, how about three prime suspects? The most wanted list in the FBI of samsara. Delusion, craving, and hostility. I mean, check it out. You know, trace your suffering and, and see if you can't always find that, that mafia of mental afflictions. They're always behind it, you know, whether explicitly or implicitly. Just trace it back and say, ah, you again. You again. You are definitely, you're on my hit list. You know, public enemy. We have to bring you to justice. Right? They and all their derivatives, all the derivative mental afflictions, jealousy, arrogance, and so forth and so on, primary secondary mental afflictions, but it always traces back to three, and among three, it always traces back to one. Delusion, and that's rooted in unknowing. So, for us to perceive, excuse me, for us to perceive the causal relationships, not just be figuring them out, but actually perceive them, then we have to have something of a wide-angle lens that is not just going in moment-by-moment, moment, staccato moments of this, 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 but a broader, a broader spectrum, a more panoramic spectrum that is able, and, and the technical term is working memory, that is to be able to hold something in mind and to be able to see with, within it, to be able to work with it, understand it. So to see one event and then another event arising, now the mere fact that one event precedes another event, does that necessarily imply that the earlier one caused the latter one. No way. Here's a smart guy. Bad beard, but really smart. It's, it's gone. <laughs> I teased him so much, he got rid of the beard, but he's still as smart as ever. Um, so that didn't take away from his intelligence. Clearly, the mind is not quite... A, the mind may be in the brain, I doubt it, but it's not in the beard, because he's just as smart as he was this morning. Okay. No, obviously not. This is, the, this is the wellspring of so much superstition. The rabbit's foot. I brought my rabbit's foot, and I had, I had a terrific game. I, I hit a whole bunch of balls in the baseball game. Oh, man, that rabbit's foot. That's what did it. I always have to. Or this old pair of dirty socks. I wear this one when I won my tennis match. Boy, that's my lucky socks. You know, this runs through all of sports. You know, your dirty socks, a special pair of underwear, 
a little bracelet, the, girl, the girlfriend's ring that you put in your pocket, whatever it is, you know. They say, oh, but that caused it because you know, it preceded it and then that, that happened. So there's the dumbbell approach to causality. If it preceded it, it must have caused it. You know. I kind of like that, though, because um, you know, the, end of the, um, the end of the age is coming on December 21st of this year. And I've just said that. And now you just watch. I have said, the end of the age is coming, and now just watch. December 21st, I, I will have caused it, right? Because I, I said it first. I mean, the, the silliness abounds. The silliness abounds. And it's a root of much, much superstition. Tremendous amount of superstition. Of just thinking, if A precedes B, A must have, have caused B. But if you're closely applying mindfulness with discerning intelligence, then you can see A preceded B, but not causal related. A preceded B, ah, causal related. And then it gets more interesting still. Because if you see it only once, how would you know? How would you know? But if you perceive it multiple times, then a database starts to grow. So this is not answering a whole lot of questions. I think it's raising some really, really important ones. So when we closely apply mindfulness with discerning intelligence, with prajna, wisdom or intelligence, and we are looking for the interrelationships. This is absolutely core to the Sarvatana. It's core to the Four Noble Truths. You start with effect, you look for the cause. Not all those cooperative conditions. They're endless. But what are the causes? And then you look for an effect. The achievement of liberation. That's an effect. Okay? The achievement of liberation. And then you go for the cause. Path to that achievement. So it's all causality. Start to finish. Four Noble Truths is all about causality. And then, we find this, I think it's implicit or only thinly veiled in the Sarpatana Sutta. When the Buddha says, for each of the four, starting with the body, closely attend to or contemplate the factors of origination and the factors of disillusion. Right? This, the, the, the probing ontological analysis into causality, how things emerge and how they dissolve, when do they become themselves? When exactly is it that a sprout, when is the first moment of a sprout when a seed is germinated? A seed germinates, right? And then after some time, you've got a sprout. Exactly when does that happen? Right? And then you have the sprout, eventually it's going to die. It's going to get burnt, dried up, one way or another, but it's not going to remain a sprout forever. So exactly when does it stop being a sprout? In other words, its sproutness is finite. It has a beginning and an end. And that goes for seeds, and that goes for everything, pretty much everything else. But exactly, what was that demarcation when it, we can say, now it exists, now it's a sprout, now it's no longer a sprout. So closely, with an ontological probe that is looking right in the very nature of existence of the causes and the emergence, how does it emerge? If you do that deeply enough, you're right into the king of all syllogisms, Nagarjuna. You're right into, you're up to your neck in Nagarjuna. And that is to realize emptiness by way of pratita sambutpada. It's the most, really, it's kind of the, like the royal carriage, the most noble, the most profound, the most celebrated way of realizing emptiness is really to closely inspect and ontologically probe into the very nature of causality itself. So we'll get to that during our second month. But, there, but I just wanted to make this connection here. Now for this first month where we're really working on the three marks of existence and not yet going to emptiness or really emphasizing it, impermanence, dukkha, and then non-self, then 
as we're closely applying mindfulness to the mind, as we'll do just in a few minutes now, what I'd like to highlight is the following point. Yesterday, we were looking primarily at the objective appearances, a bit easier, the easiest thing to observe for most people. The discursive thoughts, the chit-chat arising in the mind, the mental images, not that hard to observe. More difficult to observe, to clearly inspect, to closely apply mindfulness to the subjective impulses, such as emotions. Well, when we were looking at Vedana, we are looking at just the basic emotions of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Now that we're closely applying mindfulness to the mind, then that's, that refers to all the rest of mental processes. So it's a great big umbrella term. And that is all the emotions. But of course, we can still attend to the, the emergence of pleasure, of displeasure, of boredom, of interest, of excitation, of dullness, of so forth, these various states of consciousness. What I think here, what the point I'd really want to emphasize, and I think it's pretty close to the last point, is this, is, and that is as you experience some kind of pleasure arising, that is settling the mind, and then focusing your mindfulness on the space of the mind, closely applying it to it, and to the events arising therein, when you experience a feeling of pleasure or displeasure arising, Here's, to my mind, one of the juiciest questions that is fruitful, transformative, meaningful questions that can be posed, to my mind. And that is you experience pleasure, okay? for example. Then ask a question. Is this pleasure stimulus-driven? Is it a response to something pleasant? Either something pleasant in the body, or you heard something, or very likely you remembered something or imagined something. But something comes to mind, some appearance comes to mind, and you experience it as pleasant, therefore pleasure arises, and that's nice, nothing wrong with that. And we call that hedonic pleasure. Right? So to, when pleasure arises, if it's hedonic pleasure, recognize it as such. That's really useful. Really, really useful. And then, as you look to perceive relationships, look to see if you can identify what catalyzed it, the cooperative condition. A memory? Thought, fantasy, whatever it is. See if, you can see if you can identify the trigger, the cooperative condition that nudged, that boosted that emergence of a pleasant response that we experience as pleasure. So hedonic. But some of you have already experienced, maybe all of you for that matter, whether during this retreat or prior to this retreat, all of you, I think, have experienced another kind of pleasure, still feels good, it's pleasant, it's mental. But when you look around for who done it, that is, what catalyzed it? What was the appearance? What am I responding to? What am I finding pleasant? Hmm. You don't see anything. It's not a pleasurable way of experiencing that. It's a quality of well-being, of sukha, that you're bringing to whatever you experience to brushing your teeth, to taking a shower, to trimming your toenails. None of those are intrinsically pleasant. I mean, they may be, may not be. depends on your mood, right? But what's the quality you're bringing to them? Prior to being stimulated in a pleasant or unpleasant fashion, sometimes it's sukha. And I think, very possibly, all of you experience that on some occasion, where there's simply a sense of well-being. But it's not a response to something that happened to you, some appearance arising to the mind. So we're going to call that genuine happiness. Yeah. It's not ultimate, 
If it's ultimate, probably, we probably wouldn't have experienced it yet. But the Buddha said, find what truly brings you happiness and follow it. So before Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, the Buddha said something very similar a long time ago. Find what truly makes you happy and then trace it, like the hound dog picking up the scent. Hey, that's genuine happiness. It may not be immutable. It may not be ultimate. It may but you know, might have to do with pranas going into the central channel. But this is the scent, you know. And then say, okay, let's follow that one. See where that takes us. Okay? So observe the occurrence of genuine happiness. And observe the absence of any appearance serving as its cooperative condition. And see that it's more simply arising without being impeded. In other words, observe what isn't there that's not impeding. Like if you start ruminating with some old resentment, oh, that'll definitely put a cork in your genuine happiness. That'll just make it go right down, right? So in this regard, I find enormously useful, something I've learned from the Theravada tradition. I've never seen it so clearly laid out in the Indo-Tibetan. And that is, first of all, from the, well, from the Theravada. The nature of the bhavanga, which we call also the substrate consciousness, is prabhasajitta, papasajitta in Pali, or prabhasajitta, brightly shining mind, or mind of clear light. Two translations of the same term. But it's not referring to rikpa, Buddha nature, it's referring to substrate consciousness, but brightly shining and by nature pure. They're saying this of substrate consciousness, let alone rikpa, which doesn't come in the Theravada or the Pali canon. Naturally pure and luminous. Right? And then, of course, when you experience it by way of shamatha, you find a third quality, and that is, oh, it's also blissful. What obscures it? Why are we not just, if that's always there, and the Bambanga, I will simply say, substrate consciousness for sure, substrate is always there. And its nature is bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. Those are not add-ons that you get from someplace else. That's the nature of substrate consciousness. So why aren't we just walking around all day, blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual, until there's something to think about? And then we pick up, like picking up a tool, we pick up thinking, thank you very much, done, and we're back to non-conceptual, until we need to pick up thinking again. Why isn't that the case? In other words, why are we not naturally sane? Because that's sane. Luminous, non-conceptual, when there's nothing to think about, and then blissfulness arising as a symptom of a well-balanced, sane mind. So why are we not just already sane? What happened? And what happened were little, some, some little pesky critters called the five obscurations. And they are obscuring this blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual nature of our own minds, our own inheritance. Because again, it's not something you get from Buddhism or anything else, not even from your parents. This, this is really yours, much closer than your body. You can start losing limbs and still be here, losing hair and even losing a beard if you have the guts. You, know? you can lose all kinds of things, but you just can't lose. You can lose your memory. You can lose your intelligence. You can lose a lot of things. You can, of course, you can lose your mind. One thing you can't lose is substrate consciousness. There's no way to lose that one. So if anything belongs to you, that might be a good candidate. But, leaving that aside, there it is. That's the keeper. That's the one that continues on, the substrate consciousness. So what's obscuring it? Five obscurations that obscure, that make invisible to us, 
which means to take out of the realm of experience for us on the top side, so to speak, mucking about in the coarse mind, makes the, the natural luminosity, bliss, and non-conceptuality of the substrate consciousness invisible, unknown, and therefore widely refuted. Because why should I accept something that I've never seen, and if I don't know anybody else who's seen it, then why should I assume it exists? That's not an unintelligent position. Limited, but not unintelligent. And so the metaphors, I think, find very useful. So what's one that just obscures, blanks over, like putting a, a concrete, concrete lid on these, the bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality of substrate consciousness, Ill, sub, uh, the sensual craving. Sensual craving. That'll do it. Because here's bliss here, right? I'll, I'll just point to my heart, heart chakra. Here's where bliss is. And then I think, okay, I've got no bliss, but who can make me blissful? Who's going to make me happy? What's going to make me happy? Where shall I move? What kind of, kind of job shall I get? What kind of an education shall I get? What friends? What... And it, clearly, that's going to obscure what I already have because I'm looking exactly in the opposite direction. Where, what I need to do is unveil here and instead of doing it, say, never mind veils, I can fix this. I just need somebody who, you know, I need better food, better sex, better place to live, nicer car and so forth. That'll do it. In other words, just give me a lot of cooperative conditions. Who needs a primary cause? Why don't we just snuff that one out and add, you know, sugar on top of a concrete lid. So it is said that this fixation on the bounties of the desire realm, because it's not just sensual craving, it's not just sex, food, and so forth. It's much broader than that. It's all the fixation on the three jewels of the material world. Remember the three jewels that many, many people take refuge in? Money, power, and fame or status. Look at modern education. Look at business, look at politics, look at sports. Look pretty much any direction you like and see where are people really pinning their hopes. Money and all that money can buy. That's a lot. But money can't buy power. You can't, I was about to say you cannot buy in the American presidency. I think that remains an open question that we'll know in a couple of months. But generally speaking, you can't simply buy political power or by other kinds of power, you have to be something more crafty or clever or something. And likewise, you can't simply buy status. The nouveau riche, aspiring, aspiring, and then the aristocracy saying, aspiring but not achieving. You know? Right. You are not where we are. Your money is too, too recent. We're dead broke, but at least we have good blood. Right? So status, money can't buy. You have to get there some other way. So there we are. Pretty much, I think that's the three jewels of mundane world. Wealth and everything that wealth can purchase, power and everything you can do with it, and then status and everything you can do with status, prestige, reputation, fame. That's a lot. And for, ma for many people, that pretty much defines that's a good life. If you could just be wealthy, powerful, and famous, and it would be really helpful to be good-looking too, then you could be really happy. And it's so wonderful that we have the entertainment industry. That all you have to do is look and see, not true. Not true. Yeah. So there it is. The fixation on that. The metaphor is if the clear and luminous, pure, blissful nature of your own awareness, 
when unveiled. If it is likened to a crystal clear pool of water with sun just beaming through it. Okay? So that's a nice metaphor. A limpid, transparent, luminously well-lit pool of water. Clear, crystal clear water. Then the fixation on hedonic well-being, hedonic pleasure, is like throwing a handful of dye into the water. And then all you see is a dye. You don't see the qualities of water. It's no longer transparent. It's not luminous. It's not pure. You can't see through it. You just see dye. Right? So that's one way of obscuring the clear and luminous nature of your mind by throwing in the dye of, oh, I could only be more wealthy. More people could love me. I'd have more respect, and so forth and so on. And then it's, you know, there it is. It's totally obscured. There's one. Ill will. That really works. If you'd really like to totally obscure the natural luminosity and bliss of your own mind, ill will is a real killer. It really does the work. Okay? And this, the analogy here, with, keeping with the analogy of the clear pool of water, boiling water. Boiling water. The water is clear. That is, it's not polluted, but you can't see through it because all you can see is the bubble, bubble, bubble. Ill will, malice, malevolence, enmity. Totally obscures the actual transparent, limpid, blissful nature of the mind. That's the second one. The third one is laxity and dullness. Laxity and dullness. And laxity and dullness is likened to moss that covers the surface. So it's right there on the surface. It's quite thin. But then you can't see through it. Right? And so likewise, we all know it. We know what laxity and dullness are like. There, you just can't see into the depths of the mind because you're caught on the surface level of just, just that, laxity and dullness. Fourth one, excitation and I will say anxiety. Excitation and anxiety is like a pool of water where the, the surface is rippled by wind. So you're just getting a lot of wave action on the surface. Okay? You can't see through it. You can't see into the depths of the water. All you're seeing is the waves. We all know that. And that's exactly what it's like. Think about it. When your mind is caught up in rumination, distraction, agitation, anxiety, guilt, and so forth, it's all on the surface. It's all there in the vibration. All the perturbations on the surface of the mind. And you can't see beyond it because they get you in their grip and they throttle you like a terrier throttles a rat. You've ever been the rat? It's really unpleasant. Okay, that's the fourth one. And then the final one is this debilitating doubt. How has your week gone? Oh, ups and downs. Sometimes kind of good, sometimes kind of bad. Sometimes might get really depressed, but sometimes get inspired. Sometimes this and sometimes that. I think I could achieve shamatha, but probably not. Etc. <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. You know, it's not like, okay, I totally and definitely, immutably and inherently suck at meditation, and therefore I'm spending the next five weeks on the beach. Now that's a decision. <laughs> that's coming to some definite certainty. I am absolutely, irredeemably hopeless as a meditator. It was a total mistake to come to the mind center. But the beach is waiting, and I'll certainly be happier there than I am here. <laughs> that's at least a decision, Right? Or the beach is just a beach. It's just sand and salt water. If you want sand and salt water, get a bucket of sand and a pool of salt water at home and just knock yourself out. 
You know, if that's what you really wanted is sand and salt water, sit in your bathtub with a bucket of sand and have some fun, you know. If that's really the source of pleasure, then, you know, your bucket of sand and the salt water should just, you know, make your day, you know. You might even throw in a plastic ducky if you really want some bliss, you know. So that's, that's the thing about afflictive uncertainty. It just doesn't let us rest. It's awfully wobbling, wobbling, wobbling. And so that's said to be like turbid water, where there's just a lot of silt, muck, grunge in the water. And so, once again, you just can't see through it. So I find those, those five metaphors very useful. And then the task here is to identify when genuine happiness comes up, it's coming you know, on a relative level. It's coming from that place. I mean, ultimate, okay, it's coming from Rikpa. But Rikpa is a little bit beyond our scope for the, for the time being, I'm going to assume. But this substrate consciousness is not that far away. You, you tap into it every time you fall asleep. How far away could it be? You know? And so there it is. Of course, when you're deep asleep, it's veiled by laxity and dullness. So then you don't get all the blissful element, but at least it's restful. right? And so this genuine happiness on a relative level, it's just coming from that dimension of consciousness. And it gets unobscured a little bit, and then some ray of clarity, some ray of bliss, some ray of non-conceptuality beams out. And they say, ah, that's my inheritance. And then the five obscurations, like a cloud layer, come and obscure it again. So genuine happiness, its substantial cause, its primary cause, is nowhere else than your own substrate consciousness. not going to be anywhere else, because that's of the very nature of bliss. So to unobscure it is the task, not to try to add on more stuff to somehow concoct bliss with a bunch of cooperative conditions. That's called hedonic pleasure. All very well, but then after a while, of course, it tapers off. The novelty wears off. No longer interesting. Whereas here's a wellspring. It doesn't get boring. It doesn't get tired. So this, and then the final point is while we have genuine happiness and hedonic, and also as you're closely inspecting your mind, Look for, and again, I find this so fascinating, if unhappiness, boredom, restlessness, grumpiness, tiredness, just something, just something, anything, some unpleasant feeling of any flavor arises while you're meditating. It may never happen again, but should it happen? Should it happen? Then check it out. Is it hedonic unhappiness? Is it your knees? Is it your back? Are you just feeling heavy in the body? Uh, is it your mind? Is the, is the, is, is the fact that you're, get, you're restless? Or is there something arising in your mind that's kind of you're, you're experiencing in an unpleasant way? In other words, are you getting some unpleasant stimulation? Mentally, sensorily, tactily, whatever. But is something making you unhappy? Restless and so forth, that whole bandwidth. If so, good. That's called hedonic unhappiness. Okay, then you see it. But then is there such a thing as genuine unhappiness? And I think we've already, we've already experienced that. We've all had that experience on many occasions. And Tsongkhapa makes this point. Come back to Tsongkhapa once again. He said, insofar as the mind is dominated by mental afflictions, that it's just habitual, this is just your normal state, you're caught up in one another, you're just kind of basically going around getting into a bit of attachment and then in a bit of anger and then more delusion and then a bit of more attachment and anger and a bit of arrogance and a bit of jealousy and so forth, if that's basically the swimming pool that you're swimming in, then even when you have no stimulation, even when nothing's happening to you, in other words, you can be in Lama Ishi's dark room, 
Or you could be in solitary confinement. Or you could be in a hospital bed, all by yourself, not even in any pain, but just by yourself in a room, right? or in a meditation cave up in the mountains, but with really nothing unpleasant happening to you. You can be richly unhappy. And it can be very, can have some real staying power. In other words, you can really slip into some chronic depression there. And then you say, but what's making you depressed? I mean, you, you've got enough food, you've got a toilet, you've got four walls to look at. You know, what's your problem? I mean, there's nothing bad happening to you. And it doesn't even have to be bad things happening to you or in your mind. That was, I think, the subtle point he's getting. You don't even have to think unhappy thoughts. That is just when the mind is conditioned by, dominated by mental afflictions, whether or not there's talking or rumination going in the mind, you can feel bad anyway even without being negatively stimulated by something happening to you or in your mind, you can just feel bad already. Right? That's interesting. And that's genuine unhappiness. That's what I call genuine unhappiness. It's not stimulus-driven. Your mind is imbalanced. Your mind is not well. And this is a symptom of a not-well mind. As, as, as Pascal said, the problem with modern man is our inability to sit quietly in our chambers is sitting quietly in our chambers with nothing bad happening to us becomes unbearable. So what do we do in modernity? Say, well, the hell with sitting quietly in our chambers. Let's get out and do something. At least work. At least be productive. So if you're Germanic or Scandinavian, Northern European, then let's get out and do something. Let's get some work done. And if you're from Spain, Portugal, Italy, say, well, let's have some good food and relax. Let's party. <laughs> you know? But either way, whether it's going to work to occupy your mind or whether going to play to occupy your mind and racking up your debts in the meantime, <laughs> either way, it's an escape. Right? It's to occupy yourself. At least I'm being productive. I may be a miserable person, but at least I overcome it by being productive. And I may be a miserable person, but look at my shirt. <laughs> and look at my food. And look at my car. Look at my what? One of the boyfriends of my stepdaughter. Chickmobile. Chickmobile. No, chick, chick magnet. That's what he called it. Chick magnet. Chick, the Italians make chick magnets like nobody on the planet. I mean, a Maserati, Lamborghini, Ferrari, let alone the cheaper ones. I mean, if that's not a chick magnet, I don't know what it is. Porsches are very good machines. But a Lamborghini? This is a chick magnet. So there we are. So, I may have a lot of mental afflictions, but nevertheless, look at my car. You know? So look for genuine unhappiness and trace it to its root. And instead of trying to cover it over, instead of trying to anesthetize it by hedonic stimulation, unveil it. And then unveil the veil. And see, there's something beneath the mental afflictions. And that's where the really good news is. Okay? Isn't it fascinating? I, think I, th I really do. I think it's utterly fascinating. I don't think there's anything more fascinating. This unexplored, massive territory, this wilderness of the mind, waiting to be explored. So let's do it. Please hop in. Yes, go ahead, Andrea. Go ahead. But you need a microphone. Microphone coming. 
Uh, just to specify, um, last time I was here, uh, you asked about the CPN about the link. CPN oh. So I checked also with the, uh, one of the major geisha in Sera. Mm. Uh, yeah, I phoned him. Oh, cool! Sunday. Thank you. So uh, he said that uh, well, uh, CPN is actually within impermanence. Is his conscious? It, it, it is what within is he actually is an impermanent phenomena. Oh, it has to be sure. It's among the twelve links. Exactly, and is consciousness. And uh, and then I ask him. I sort of in, intrude and I say, okay, so what about for Chitamatra? And he said, for Chitamatra, the CPN is the mind basis of all. So is Krishnamshay. Exactly. Sub- substrate consciousness. Exactly. And then if they're saying that, and of course Prasanga refutes that, so what alternative do we have then to say subtle continuum of mental consciousness? This is what, and then I asked for Prasangika, he said that, and uh, apart from Chitamatra, all the other says that is the mental consciousness, the subtle mental consciousness. And he said, an interesting thing is that usually when you go deeper into classifying that link, is actually the base of becoming. Yeah. Yeah. So and, uh, and and that which is becoming, I would interpret as being coarse mind. Exactly. That which emerges out of it, and that's exactly bhavanga, yeah. ground of becoming. What becomes out of the ground, javana. Yeah. And javana is all the activities. Ah, oh, very interesting. Very very interesting. And also, just as a point for those interested in philosophy, I mean, in Buddhist philosophy, psychology, but it's empirical. It's not just metaphysical. And that is when we're looking at the eighteen elements. Remember those? The five sensory domains. The five. The, excuse me. Six. Six, six domains of consciousness, or se- domains, the six faculties, and then the six modes of consciousness. The faculty, the sense faculty for mental consciousness is also mental consciousness. It's not brain. And it's the only one out of the, fa- the they're called indriya, or faculties, independence upon which consciousness arises. So for all of the other five, the, for the five sense faculties, they are physical. They're inside the head, or tactile throughout the body and so forth. But when it comes to the faculty independence upon which mind arises, contrary to the belief of almost every living neuroscientist, not every single one, but almost all of them, the faculty independence upon which consciousness arises is not physical, it's not brain, it is itself consciousness, mental consciousness. And so once again, when I look at the yige wombo, look at the indriya, Manendriya, it's called Sanskrit, mana endriya, or mana indriya, manendriya, the faculty of the mind, the faculty independence upon which mind or manas emerges. I mean, come right back to the same thing substrate consciousness. Because that's it. If we look at the first moment, the first moment that a person, for example, Chucho, here's a Chucho, he's finite, finite in duration. You haven't been around forever, you won't be around forever. So there was, without pretending no, whether that was at conception, when the egg and the sperm were, were, were unified, whether it was at that moment, or for a minute later, or a week later, I won't pretend to know. I don't know. Okay? But certainly from the time, let's say, that the egg and sperm were united, from that time, and then there's a point when you're, you're dead, between there, between those two points, there, was, there must have been, there had to be, just logically, there had to be a first moment of Chucho's consciousness. Of Chucho, this particular, he's a man, human being. So you, didn't, you, as this person, did not exist prior to the fertilization of your mother's egg. That's obvious. Whether it occurred at that moment, possibly. We'll leave that as an open question. But sometime from that point until now, there had to be a first moment in which your mind, 
your mind arose, human mind arose. There had to be a first moment. Because you do have a mind now, and it wasn't there a second before fertilization of the egg. So there had to be a first moment of the emergence of your mind. And, that, and that's manas, your mind. And that had to arise independence upon a faculty. And so what was the immediately preceding cause for the very first moment of the emergence of your mind? Well, the materialists would say neurons, okay? Prove it. And the Buddhists would say, not neurons, they're cooperative conditions. But it, that independence upon which it arose, preceding moment of substrate consciousness, which was not human. Not human. But that's why I say substrate consciousness, bhavanga, subtle continuum of mental consciousness is like a stem consciousness. Like a stem consciousness, like we have a stem cell that can turn into various types of cells, bone marrow, blood, neurons, and so forth and so on, waiting to get in the right environment to take on that particular configuration. Likewise, your substrate consciousness is a stem consciousness waiting to become configured, depending on the kind of brain, the type of physical organism and so forth, whether it's a dog, a cow, a human being, and then it has its first moment and out of substrate consciousness arises the first moment of your human mind. Because you do have a human mind. It had to have a first moment. It had to come from someplace. So either a bunch of neurons got together and made nothing transform into something, or else they transformed into it. Not very likely. Or they act as cooperative conditions to catalyze your substrate consciousness to emerge as your human mind. Quite interesting. Okay, enough talk. Now let's actually look at the specimen, look at the phenomenon, because you have a privileged access. It's your mind. You may as well know it, because it won't be around forever. You know, your mind, Chucho's mind, it's got bookends. It had a beginning. We don't know exactly when. We know when it's then in principle, death is when you have to kiss that mind goodbye. So before you have to kiss it goodbye, give it a big hug. <laughs> Get to know it. Now release the agitation of the mind, the conceptualization, the turbulence. Let your awareness descend into the non-conceptual space of your body, right down to the earth element. Settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, and calm the conceptual turbulence of your mind for a little while with mindfulness of breathing.
then direct the full force of mindfulness to the space of the mind, to the objective appearances that arise within that domain, but also to your subjective responses, subjective impulses. And you may take a special interest in the rising of pleasure and displeasure. Apply discerning intelligence to distinguish, if you can, the pleasure and the displeasure that are stimulus-driven as opposed to the sense of well-being that arises simply because your mind is balanced, relatively unobscured, or the genuine unhappiness that arises because your mind is afflicted. Observe closely and connect the dots of individual moments of experience with the causal relationships that link those moments into coherent patterns. When you find that you've simply been caught up in rumination, return to the shamatha practice of settling the mind in its natural state. Let your awareness find its own ground, its own place, in stillness. Recognize the distinction between that stillness and the movements of the mind. 
And when you feel ready, then venture forth once again to closely inspect the movements of the mind, the emergences of the mind, and the relationships from moment to moment. If you're not yet familiar enough with the shamatha practice of settling the mind in its natural state, you can always return for a while to mindfulness of breathing, to establish your base camp, a place to rest, a place to compose your attention. And then when you're ready, closely apply your mindfulness once again the space of the mind and events arising within it.
with discerning intelligence, note the difference between grasped and ungrasped thoughts and images, those for which you feel you were the agent, that you did it, they belong to you, and those that you sense that you simply witnessed, but you didn't do them, you didn't intend them. Then apply that same discerning intelligence to the more subjective impulses. Desires, for example. Were you the agent of the desire? Did you, did you intend it? Did you identify it? Is it really yours? Or is it the desire? Simply something that arose and you witnessed, but without identifying with it. Finally, as you closely apply mindfulness to these objective appearances within the domain of the mind, such as discursive thoughts and mental images, carefully inspect the manner in which they arise. Can you identify the cooperative conditions? It could be an emotion, it could be a sound, a tactile sensation. And then can you identify the substantial cause? that which actually transformed into the discursive thought or mental image. As the Buddha counseled, contemplate the factors of origination.
Andriella. You, do you need to go right now? Can I ask uh, one quick question for the, or actually two quick questions for the Geshe? And that is among the 12 links of dependent origination. The first one is the link of ignorance, avidya. The second one is the link of compositional factors, ducheki, ducheki yenla, samskara. And the third one is, of course, the link of consciousness, vinyana. And then we, have, then we have more coming after that, obviously. Here's my question for the Geshe. What's the distinction between that third link, consciousness, and the Sibiyenla, the Bhavanga? Are they the same? Or are they qualitatively somehow really different? Okay. That's one interesting one. And then the next one, you need to leave, but the, where I'm going to go here is, is I was just uh, kind of translating one very brief section of a text that I've translated in its entirety called Buddhahood Without Meditation, which is already translated, but I've now translated the big commentary to it. And it's, it's, it's pretty much finished. We're just polishing it. In this text, Dujum Lingba makes a reference to something that's referred to many, many times in the Indian and the Tibetan tradition, and that is of illusionists. Illusionists. Yumakin. <coughs> and these are ones, these are not like a, uh, like a David Copperfield or the modern illusionists that are doing it primarily with really fantastic technology. According to Buddhist and Hindu lore, they're not just doing that by, by trickery. It's not, it's not a trick. They're using, they're using two things. No, three things. Three things. Ze, ngā, and tingenze. And so what, what the illusionist is using here in order to create an optical illusion, a magical illusion, but optical illusion, is, number one, a substance, some kind of a, a magical substance. But, and that's my question with the geshe. I've always heard it, ze, 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 substance. Okay, what kind of substance? Psilocybin? LSD? <laughs> you know, what kind of substance? I don't think so. I don't, it's not a drug. But do they have any idea? What are they referring to when they say ze? Ze is a, is, could be anything, any physical substance at all. I'd be quite curious. Ah. Oh, ah, cool. That I can answer, yeah. Usually they are referring to, it's weird, but they are referring to a wooden, a wooden, uh, uh, a wooden object uh, of the size of a pebble. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. So a, that is actually what they are empowering. So it could be pretty much any, just an ordinary thing, exactly. and then they're empowering it with the samadhi and the mantra. Exactly. That's good to know. Interesting. That actually makes sense. That's interesting. Okay, good. That, okay, one down. That's very helpful. I didn't know that. Thank you. Excellent. Okay. You're released. <laughs> Oh, lasso. And now, where I'm going with this, and uh, Ilaria, yeah? uh, then you can, you, he might find this interesting later. He maybe already knows, but I found it quite interesting. kind of caught my attention. And this is from Dujum Lingba's Mind Treasure on Dzogchen. It's called Buddhahood Without Meditation, or in Tibetan, they simply call it Nangjang. Okay? And he's referring to this, uh, but it, it pertains mainly to our practice here, in, I think, a very interesting way. And we have questions, but not a whole lot, and I think this is really worth the time. And then you can decide after I finished. And that is Jujum Lingba. It's in his presentation of the nature of emptiness. But then he gives an analogy. He gives an analogy. And he said, for the example, the analogy of an optical illusion created by an illusionist who uses a dze, physical substance. Well, now we say that's innocuous. It's not some high-tech Indian thing, something. It's just a piece of wood. But kind of just a platform, a basis, a mantra that's going to have some power to it, because it's not just fee, fi, fo, fum. There's going to be something sophisticated about the mantra. 
That I would, I'm certain of. And then samadhi. Okay, that's the laser technology. And I, it's a good metaphor. It's a good metaphor because holographic images are created by the lasers. So, of course, it's just a metaphor, but I think it's a very good one. Very, very finely honed, sharply focused, refined light of consciousness. That's samadhi. So you bring these two together. But, but what he's talking about here, why I re- refer to it right now, is he's talking about the primary cause or substantial cause, the gyu, the hetu, and then the cooperative conditions for what's bringing about that illusion. It's clearly an effect. So what's the primary cause and what are the cooperative conditions? Okay, the cooperative conditions that do not transform into it, but without which it doesn't happen. In other words, they're the cooperative, they're the, trigger, the triggers, they're cooperative conditions. Okay, you have the substance that's kind of innocuous. Now we've learned from Andrea, piece of wood. Okay, the mantra, that's going to be high-tech. The samadhi, that's very high-tech. I mean, it's not easy to achieve. And then the other cooperative condition that's necessary is the mind of the observer who observes, who is looking in the right direction. If you don't have a spectator, and if the illusionist himself has his eyes closed and nobody's around, there is no illusion. It doesn't stand all by itself. So, and he's not creating this for his own fun. He's you know, doing that by himself. No, the illusion is actually it was a, a performance. People would do that. And so he's creating it for an audience, or at least for one, one other person. So you have to have the other person's mind, which is looking in the right direction, and then sees it. And then the substance, the mantra, and then the illusion is samadhi. Those are all cooperative conditions. So all of those are helping something become an illusion. What is it, and this is what caught my attention, what is the primary cause that actually transforms into the illusion? Not the stick or the piece of wood, not the mantra, not other people's minds, and not the yogi samadhi. Could be, but it's not. Any guesses? Somebody said something. Francesca. The mind of? No, no, he specifically said that's a cooperative condition. The mind is a very good guess, very intelligent guess, and it's, it's, it's incorrect, because Dujun, I think he knows what he's talking about. So the mantra, the substance, the mind of the observer, and the samadhi of the illusionist, all of those are cooperative conditions. Something else is the, the cause, the primary cause. Juduna. Nope, not the idea either. No, it's not. Well, there was no illusion. It's the first moment of the illusion. Not necessarily. No, there's not always illusion. You don't, you know, the, the, the illusion is not walking around with the illusion following every goes brushing his teeth and going to the bathroom. Oh, when are you going to go away? Go away. No, there's, no it's, it's wrong. It's, it's wrong. It's, that's true, but that's not the substantial cause. The other mind is a cooperative condition. Yeah. Necessary. What's your guess? Nicola? Uh... Well, which one? Rikpa or primordial spaces of awareness? He doesn't say that. It's a good guess. But that's not what he says. I'm not going to refute you. But that's not what he says. Okay? Yes, uh, uh, Catherine. I I was thinking it was his intention. No, that's that's definitely a cooperative condition. Just like the intention to sow wheat in a field. It's, It's definitely implicated, right? The substrate consciousness. No. No, not that either. No. Bear in mind, your substrate consciousness isn't even the cause, that is, substantial cause, of your dreams. 
it illuminates the dreams. Okay, you get one more guess. Okay, it's going to be... You've already had one chance. Anybody want to guess? And don't think too deep. Think more phenomenologically. What else is around that might be? Jen, you get the last word. Karma? No, it's not karma. Karma? No. That was like, if in doubt, okay, karma. <laughs> Why did he say that? What about... Karma. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, it answers everything and it doesn't answer, in some cases, it doesn't answer anything. Okay, no, I'm going to go. Okay, Steph, you Could have to... Could it be light? What's that? Light? Like light? sunlight? Causing no, That's not what he says. That's not, it's, a, it's a good guess also, but it's not what he says. What he says, I think, is actually the most interesting. And it's right in front of you. Yeah, that's it. I, I'm transformed into all the illusions. What he says, space. Space. Just says that. Akasha. Space. He doesn't go for primordial space. He doesn't go, whoa, 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 whoa. He just says, you know, space. Like, there's a piece of wood. There's a mantra. There's a samadhi in the minds of the observers. And there's space. So he's not going all metaphysical and weird on us. He just says, space is the cause. Which he's, but there's only one way to interpret that. And that is its space itself transforming into the illusion. Because otherwise, it would just be one more cooperative condition. The mantra doesn't transform into it. The substance doesn't. The minds of the observer doesn't, don't transform into the illusion. The, the yogi's samadhi doesn't transform into the... His samadhi is in his mind stream. It's not going to transform into something that somebody else can see. He actually says it's a space that is the cause, the primary cause. And now let's pursue it a little bit. We know there are two types of space, at least. I won't limit it to that. No, there are more than that, but just for the time being. We know this physical space. That's what physicists measure. That's what's expanding from the time of the Big Bang. Space-time is expanding, and that's why all the galaxies and stars are moving away from each other, why the galaxy is getting, the universe is getting larger. So there's such a thing as physical space. And physical space is there whether you blink or not. Right? Just like the atoms in this eyeglass carrier, they are there whether you're looking at it, whether you're touching it, it kind of doesn't matter. They are, they are there, independent of our perception. And likewise, space is there, whether we're looking at it or not, space is there, right? So, what do you think? Physical space, that physicists study, that's expanding, and they know a lot about it. What do you think? Do you think it's physical space transforming into the illusion? Who's going to be bold? Yes or no? No, no. kind of in a manner of speaking. This is what philosophers often do. In a manner of speaking, one might consider that this is a, a viable possibility. That means I'm covered. If I'm right, then I get a little wedge. But if I'm wrong, well, of course, I didn't really mean it. <laughs> so, okay, Danny, you're on. It's a mental, physical space? mental space, not no, physical. No, uh, so physical space is wrong? The physical space physical does not transform wrong. into? It's wrong. You're right. There's no way it could be physical space. Physical space is physical. This illusion is not physical. It has no physical attributes whatsoever. It's not physical. Right. So I'm quite sure you, you must... I, I'm totally convinced. You must be right. It's not physical space transforming into that image. And therefore, what other kind of space is a good option? Danny, you're on a roll. Carry on. What's the, what kind of space then would it be that's actually the primary cause that's transforming, taking on like an illusion, well, taking on the form, the appearance of that illusion. A liar. Yeah, it's got to be a liar. It's got to be a liar. 
the space of the mind. Yeah. And bear in mind, Dujum Lingba himself says elsewhere that all appearances, so now the appearances of an eyeglass carrier, the appearance of the galaxies when you're looking through a telescope, and so forth, the appearance of elementary particles when you're looking in a bumble, bubble chamber, and so forth, the appearances that arise when you're looking through a microscope or looking at an x-ray, and so forth, all appearances. Appearances not only of the five physical senses, all appearances of dreams and images and so forth. All appearances. According to Dujum Lingba, Chen, all appearances are rising from and a manifest in alaya, substrate. Not eyeglass carriers. They're made of molecules. The appearance is emerging from. The molecules emerge from other molecules, other configurations of mass energy, mass energy going back to the Big Bang. But the substrate did not emerge from the Big Bang. It's not physical, didn't arise from the physical, doesn't transform into the physical. So if that's the case, it does bear a striking resemblance to this theme that I mentioned just briefly earlier of the, within quantum field theory of all configurations of mass energy. Now we're back into mainstream physics. Quantum field theory, very mainstream. And a central theme of that is that all configurations of mass energy, including eyeglass carriers and suns and planets and particles and footballs and so forth, all configurations of mass energy are nothing other than configurations of empty space. That's straight. Straight quantum field theory. Interesting parallel. Interesting parallel. Oh, yeah. So, hope that was worth your while. It was worth my while. Even if I'm talking all by myself, I say, wow, that was interesting. <laughs> and if you didn't follow what I was saying, then I was, in fact, talking all by myself. Hola, so. Here's one from Paul. Two of the topics. Substrate, substrate consciousness, lucid dreaming. Please touch also the process of death, dharmakai, and subtle, subtle consciousness. Okay, I've got three minutes for that. That shouldn't be a problem. Okay. Happily, we will have time to return to these. The latter half of this week, that is, the first three days, including tomorrow, primarily about javana, activities, the stuff happening in the space of the mind. The latter half of this week, primarily going to awareness itself and the substrate. Okay? So, and then we'll, we'll re recycle those. But in brief, I think that kind of covers it. The substrate is that vacuity, that empty domain, but not a sheer absence, but a, a space, a space of the mind, that is what appears to substrate consciousness and appears quite vividly once you've achieved shamatha and you've slipped into the substrate consciousness without in any way obscuring the natural luminosity of the substrate consciousness. And it does get obscured when you're falling asleep normally, when you're dying normally, when you take an anesthetic normally. You're slipping into substrate consciousness, but the lights go out as you're going there. Okay? So lucid dreaming. We'll return to this. Um... One of the most interesting things... Okay, so, so lucid dreaming. There you are. Um, I mean, it's simply recognizing mental phenomena as mental phenomena while you're sleeping. And then there's also, of course, the lucid dreamless sleep, which is also possible. And that is to be in deep dreamless sleep and to know it simultaneously. Okay? Those are possible. And so the process of death, the end point of achieving shamatha is to tap into the same dimension of consciousness as the endpoint of the dying process. So in classic inter-Tibetan teachings, when you're going through the dying process, and it's discussed in quite some detail of how the physical senses implode and the 
cognitive faculties dissolve and so memory and so forth and so on. And then it's all dissolving. Well, the mind is dissolving, dissolving, the coarse mind that arises independence upon, we say nowadays the brain, and the Buddhists would say independence upon the whole energy system within the body, the prana system, and the body as a whole. Uh, what's happening there is that the coarse mind is dissolving into the subtle continuum of mental consciousness. And the point at which that disillusion is complete, in which now, okay, your coarse mind no longer exists, is after the, the white appearance and then the red chepa, red emergence, then there's the dark near attainment. Those are just the straight, literal translations. But the, the, the dark near attainment is just total blackout. It's just blackout. And so for a normal person, they'll hit that, and they, they w- it will be basically like having just fallen into deep, deep, non-lucid, dreamless sleep, just not knowing anything, just the cessation of experience, explicit experience. And from the Buddhist, the Buddhist account of dying, that's when you're dead. You're dying, 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 and you get to that point, that dark near attainment, where your coarse mind is dissolved into the subtle mind, now you're dead. Okay? Now you're dead. Or we call it, in Dzogchen terminology, now your coarse mind has dissolved into substrate consciousness. Now, I've checked with my, my principal lama for Dzogchen and asked him if one has achieved shamatha, then what are your chances of being able to die lucidly and when you come to that dark near attainment, to be lucidly dead, to be resting in it and fully cog- cognizant of you're resting in the substrate consciousness and you got there not by achieving shamatha but by dying but having first achieved shamatha, in other words, having the possibility to go through the whole trajectory of dying lucidly, get to the end point of dying, 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 dead, and still be conscious. He said, oh yeah, if you've achieved shamatha, that, sets you, that prepares you very, very well for that. Okay? And then Dujum Lingba, he comments on this, and as I recall, it's in the Vajra essence, quite far into the text. He talks about this, and he said, okay, how long can you stay dead? And you know, unlike all the, all the gr- gr- gravestones and the tomb that says, rest in peace, like you get to stay dead for a really long time. <laughs> and that's why you should enjoy the flowers. I mean, somebody's coming there. And, thank you. and Dujun Lingba says, on the outside, about six hours. About six hours is as long as you get to stay dead. And then, so sorry. The timeout is finished. The time out in samsara of just lights out, rest in peace. Why so many people commit suicide thinking that's going to really last? Big disappointment. As I, my, my, one of my favorite aphorisms, and I coined it, is the only real downside to being dead is it doesn't last. It just keeps on, then something else happens. And of course, you're there in the substrate, and then the bottom falls out, speaking very poetically, the bottom falls out of the substrate, substrate consciousness. You have a breakthrough experience. Tekchut. It's a natural tekchut experience. You break through the substrate consciousness and you get dished up to you the clear light of death. And that's Rikpa. But if you haven't already realized Rikpa, then that'll be a very brief and unproductive experience. Because you'll just be, it'll be one, I think the best way I could, I could imagine talking about it would be radical disorientation. Of just does not compute, does not compute. It'll be very brief and you'll move right on. Then you're into the bardo. Okay? That's a brief account. Oh, yeah. 
Hey, cool. Good to have a mind. It's much more interesting than not having one. So understand it while you have it. Because the next one, you know, if you're born as a frog, it won't be nearly as interesting. And you probably won't encounter the four applications of mindfulness as a frog. You know, even if you wanted to, it'd be hard to find anybody that speaks your language that can teach it. <laughs> okay, enjoy your dinner. <laughs>